So it's, um, it's a Buddhist custom at the beginning of a, of a practice session or a teaching to go for refuge to set our motiv- and to set our motivation. Um, refuge is one of the kind of cornerstones of Buddhism. And refuge is about looking for things in our world that can offer us shelter and protection from danger or protection from um, suffering, really. And uh, the, the main, there, there are considered the three jewels that we go for refuge to. There are conventional forms of refuge, um, like money and uh, having housing and having health insurance. But according to Buddhist thought, these, kind, these things can't, they're not reliable forms of shelter because they can fail us. They're not going to be there 100% of the time. The money could run out or the house could burn down or the police could not show up in time, you know, if we're going for refuge to things like that. Or the government might enact policy. We take refuge in the government to protect us and create a a sane society, but uh, at the same time, our government could go off the rails and produce an insane society. And so these are all forms of things that we sort of automatically go for refuge to because they're evident in our world. But in Buddhist thought, these things can and do fail us, which is one of the characteristics of samsara, the, the cycle of suffering since beginningless time. So when we go for refuge to the three jewels, we are looking for things that um, can provide us reliable protection, that can provide us reliable shelter. And the three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Bless you. And so we, when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we are, um, we're calling to mind that it's possible to perfect our mind, that, that we are not stuck the way that we are as suffering beings, but that we're on an evolutionary trajectory that's going to lead to a state of mind that is free from suffering, free from being battered around by circumstances, free from emotional reactivity and um, overinvestment in emotionality. Um, Buddha is a being who has awakened to the state of reality, how it truly is, not, not filtered through our uh, interpretation, which is what we're doing automatically all the time, but is um, perceiving reality as it truly is. And that's really the topic of the class tonight. What are the characteristics of a Buddha and what are, what are the logical proofs for the existence of enlightened beings? So we go for refuge to the Buddha by realizing that there is a perfected state of mind Uh, The Buddha didn't just become enlightened and then say, I'm out of here, see you guys later, you're on your own. The Buddha stuck around to teach and created traditions of teaching that have lasted for thousands of years. And that's what the Dharma is. The Dharma is the collected set of teachings or the the roadmap or the guidebook or the instruction manual to uh, a spiritual life, to accelerating our cosmic evolution towards this perfected state of mind. So we go for refuge to the Dharma by realizing that, recognizing that there are are systems that if we apply them in our life, there are techniques that if we put them into practice will change the way that our mind is working and decrease our suffering, increase our compassion and our love and our care for other beings, and especially increase our wisdom, our capacity to understand how reality is working. Uh, in order to circumvent our habits and um, uh, reactive impressions. And then the third of the three jewels is the Sangha. And that is, the the Sangha means community or um, family, people who are practicing together. So the Sangha on, on one level, on a very immediate level, is the people who come to a Dharma center on a Thursday night or any night of the week, really. That, that we are, uh, that, that a lot of people work really hard to keep this center open and um, that people bother to come to a Dharma center on Thursday night instead of staying home and watching Netflix or going to the bar or something like that. So uh, that means that we have people that we can practice together with, 
but also the the kind of the next level up is that um, there are that there are other beings who have put the Dharma into practice and who have become Buddhas themselves, and those beings are kind of cheerleading us along the way. You know that that we there are actually more enlightened beings in our world than we realize. We are we have what do they say, scales over our eyes or the, the wool is over our eyes so that we don't really see reality as it really is. And so we don't necessarily notice the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that are already in our world. We don't necessarily see them as Buddhas with a third eye and the bump on the top of their head. They have the Ushnisha where they've got some extra brain matter that normal humans don't have. They have light rays coming out of their bodies. And that's not necessarily how people appear to us. But nonetheless, that's that's a quality of our perception, not a quality of the being. So it's safe to assume that omniscient, compassionate beings are doing their best to interfere with our lives and to try to coax us along the path. So when we take refuge in the Sangha, it's not just that we have a physical place to practice and other people to practice with, but that there's, um, there are cosmic forces that are working to accelerate our cosmic evolution and that we can start to look for them. You know, where are the secret Buddhas and the secret Bodhisattvas who are prodding me along on the path? And then the, the second part is um, setting our motivation, which in Buddhism is called bodhicitta. Um, a mind, we, we are striving to shift our mind to being totally uh, other-oriented, other-obsessed. Instead of being self-obsessed and self-oriented, we're, we're trying to shift our minds to be other-oriented, altruistic, compassionate, and loving towards others. And this is based on, the, on uh, a characteristic of the enlightened state that um, enlightenment for one's own self is insufficient. It's not a full form of enlightenment. It's a... It, it, in some systems of Buddhism, they, they talk about nirvana as opposed to full enlightenment. And nirvana is sort of a personal state of equanimity where we're no longer being disturbed by our own emotions, but we're looking out onto a world that's still in turmoil and still full of conflict. And we can see that other beings are, are, are still suffering. They're still trapped in samsara. And so we can't be truly happy. We can't be truly self-satisfied uh, in our little isolated bubble looking out onto a suffering world. And, and so bodhicitta is the, the state of mind that recognizes that other beings' happiness, other beings' enlightenment is as important or more important than my own enlightenment. Because I can't really live in a, in a state of paradise where other beings are still in suffering. I need to live in a... For, for it to be complete Buddhahood, for it to be complete enlightenment, one has to be completely focused on helping others achieve enlightenment as well. So we are, we're setting a, a motivation like this, bodhicitta, that uh, I'm not doing this for fame or fortune. I don't practice because I'm trying to become more popular or have cool things to talk about at cocktail parties. But that I'm doing it because I, I recognize that I need to work on myself in order to improve the world so that the world can be uh, safe and happy for everybody. And a being who holds that is called a, a bodhisattva, which is a necessary uh, stage of development towards full Buddhahood. So we set that motivation that we're doing this. Uh, what brings us to Buddhahood, to uh, to uh to Buddhism, what brings us to Buddhism is that I recognize that I'm trapped in suffering and that I want an alternative. But what makes Buddhism work is recognizing that everybody else is in suffering and I need to be working for their benefit as well. And that's really the motivation for studying these kinds of things. So we are in a, um, <clears throat> we're in a four class series on um, valid perception, um, logic, and how to, how to use logic for our benefit in spiritual development. Um, in Buddhism, there are considered to be two main wings of Buddhism. There is the uh, method, uh, method and wisdom. Method is sometimes called compassion. Um, it's how we act in the world, um, 
trying to stop creating bad karma and to start creating good karma, to, to stop acting selfishly and start acting uh, for others' benefit. And that's considered the method wing. And then the wisdom wing is understanding how reality is really working. Trying to get past our uh, opinions about reality, get uh, over our subjective interpretations and conceptual overlays over reality, and trying to penetrate through to how reality truly exists. And so these, are, these wings also have karma, the, the practice of, of um, skillful action in order to influence our cosmic evolutionary trajectory, and wisdom, which is developing our intellect, developing our mind to be able to get around our opinions, to be able to see more accurately what the underlying reality uh, looks like. This is karma and emptiness, uh, voidness, the lack of inherent characteristics to phenomena, and rather that we are interacting with our conceptual overlays rather than the actual reality that's out there, so to say. So um, the reason we study logic is part of the wisdom side. We're trying to get a better handle on how our mind works so that we can use it skillfully and specifically to deconstruct reality. Um, This class, uh, so, so, there's, so when we're looking at valid perception, um, we're analyzing how do we know if what we are perceiving is accurate or not. And this is what the last class was on mostly, um, where we talked about correct perception versus incorrect perception and three types of correct perception. Um, direct perception, um, which is where you are immediately perceiving something with your senses, direct and immediate. Um, for example, a memory would not be con considered a valid perception because you're recollecting something that happened. You're not directly perceiving it. Um, and so usually our valid perceptions in the terms of apparent reality are accurate. We're, we are having valid, from this level, we're having valid perceptions most of the time. Examples of when we are not having valid perception are, for example, when a mouse runs in front of your car and you hit the brakes and then notice that it was a leaf tumbling across the road. The mouse was an invalid perception. For a moment there, our mind perceived something and we reacted to that something and it turned out to be an invalid perception. But for the most part, we're having valid perceptions um, on the level of apparent reality. On the level of ultimate reality, we're having invalid perceptions almost all the time because we believe our own bullshit. We believe that our opinions about the world are an accurate reflection of the world which they're not. They're, we're entirely filtered through our subjective uh, interpretations, our conceptual overlays, and especially our karma, which is our unconscious or subconscious impressions, whether it's inherited genetically or epigenetically, however you want to talk about it in a materialistic type of way. Um, they, you know, childhood traumas, things that we can't even remember that, that dramatically affect and shape our personalities as adults. Um, and so karma is pointing more towards that, the kind of hidden levels of our unconscious mind that we can't access directly, but nonetheless have a big influence on our reality. And this is why people who have been abused as children um, uh, interpret, interpret circumstances as threatening when they're not necessarily threatening because of their of their previous experience, they tend to see the world a certain way. This is one example, you know. I've been reading about psychology and trauma a lot lately and, and realizing how, to what a great degree, uh, childhood trauma, things that happened to us before we were having conscious thoughts or conscious memories, really do shape the personality as adults. And so that's one way of, of looking at karma, you know. So we, we're trying to um, learn how our mind works so that we can be more effective at having valid perceptions. Um, okay, so that was kind of an aside. Um, direct perception, immediate uh, experiences perceived by our senses, uh, inference or um, inferential or deductive reasoning, which is our ability to interpret um, interpret our world even if we don't have uh, immediate evidence 
uh, to support it. Like for example, I'm holding a, a bottle of water in my hand. Everybody look at the bottle of water. You are having a direct perception. But I put the, wa I, I put the, water, the bottle of water behind my back. You can no longer see it. But if I ask you, is the bottle of water in my hand, you can use inferential reasoning to accurately determine that it is. I haven't dropped the bottle. You didn't hear it hit the ground. I haven't done any magic tricks where I'm like doing a sleight of hand and it's going up my sleeve. I haven't, you know, surp you could maybe I've surreptitiously set it down and you didn't know that it's no longer in my hand, even though you can't see it. That would be an invalid perception through inferential reasoning. But for the most part, we're able to have valid perceptions about reality using inference. And the third type of valid perception, uh, oh, I want to talk a little bit more about inference because um, there's a lot of ways that we have, that we rely on inferential reasoning for uh, understanding our world. Uh, for example, when we learn about what's happening in other parts of the world through news media, we're really, if we accept that those events are happening, we're relying on inferential reasoning. Like say you're reading the news on your phone. You're having a direct perception of a, of a phone and a screen, but, if the, but the information is saying there's a war going on in Syria right now. We have to rely on inferential reasoning to accept that that's true. We're not, we're not there. We're not perceiving it directly. We're, we're, the only thing we're perceiving directly is reading words on a screen. That's the direct perception, but we're still having the inferential per perception as well. Um, so there's a little more room for error with inferential reasoning. Um, but it's considered pretty accurate in, in Buddhist logic. And then the third form of valid perception is um, on the basis of authority. And in our, in our society, this largely comes from the scientific and medical worlds, where, um, sci where scientific researchers pr say, we've proven this thing is the way that the world works. Now, I haven't done the research myself, uh, I don't have a PhD in whatever it is, science it is that they're telling me is working, but I trust, uh, I trust on the basis of authority that the information that they're giving me is accurate. Or when the doctor comes and says, you've got a certain type of disease and this is the treatment. You know, we take it on their authority. We haven't looked through the microscope to look at the cells doing whatever they're doing that led them to that conclusion. But um, we, we're having a form of valid perception when we believe the doctor when they say that there's a certain diagnosis and a certain prognosis. But um, when we're talking about Buddhahood, uh, we're talking, when we're talking about an enlightened being, we're, the scope gets much, much larger. And so the purpose of this class is largely to delve more into the proofs of Buddha, Buddhahood. And I don't mean proof in the scientific sense that uh, enough evidence has been gathered through double-blind studies or, or replicable research projects that we have enough evidence to say with fair certainty that this is proof. But I mean proofs in the sense that they're logical uh, exercises, um, mind experiments where we are analyzing what we know about reality to uh, access information that's not readily apparent. So when we're talking about a Buddha, we're talking about a being that has, we're kind, of, we're kind of reverse engineering what a Buddha is by presupposing what a perfected state of consciousness would look like, and then sort of reverse engineering what the characteristics of that consciousness would be. So again, that, that's why this is logic and a thought experiment rather than sort of a hard and fast assertion of what Buddhas are. We're kind of puzzling it out. And this is really important in Buddhism. It's not, Buddhism doesn't function very well as a faith-based approach to life. It's more of a scientific-based approach to life where there are assertions that we have to test and, and see what the results are for ourselves. And that's how we develop spiritually. Simply believing that a Buddha existed 2,500 years ago and that he taught all this cool stuff and it's like a fun mind-bender doesn't really accelerate our, our cosmic evolution. It's understanding the experiments that the Buddha posited and then doing those experiments ourselves in our own laboratory of the mind that's going to help us move forward spiritually. So we're trying to figure out 
What would a Buddha look like? Um, one thing about a Buddha is that they have valid perceptions 100% of the time. They are always perceiving reality accurately, right? They're awakened. They're awakened to the nature of, rea of, of ultimate reality. That's what Buddha means. It means like a, a lamp that dispels the darkness. So the word enlightenment is actually quite a good translation for the term Buddha um, because it means illuminated. And we use the word kind of awakened, but I, illuminated works well too. So uh, uh, a Buddha is a being who is awake to how reality is really working. And that means that they are having valid perceptions 100% of the time. So in, in Buddhist rhetoric, there are, two, um, there are two aspects of reality that a Buddha is able to perceive directly. One aspect of reality is that they're able to perceive the totality simultaneously, which means also that they are capable of perceiving all times simultaneously. This is why Buddhas are often represented with three eyes on or the, or the little dot on their forehead. And the, the three eyes represent that they perceive past, present, and future simultaneously. And so for a Buddha, time kind of collapses. Uh, they are, they're existing, it's not so much that they can see past, present, and future simultaneously, as that they have a state of mind that is no longer subjected to what we perceive as a linear flow of time. The arrow of time, as they call it in epistemology. That, that how we perceive time is moving in one direction but not the other. And um, we see the progress of time is inexorable. A Buddha doesn't perceive reality that way. They're outside of time. They recognize that time is a, as a projection, a conceptual overlay over reality. And um, therefore, they can perceive all of time and all of space simultaneously. So uh, a Buddha is perceiving the entire universe, or the multiverse, if there is such a thing, as if it's all direct, immediate experience. The same way that we experience the bottle of water, or the rug in front of us, or the floor underneath us, immediately, viscerally, with our senses. A Buddha is perceiving all of phenomena, all of reality that way. And this, that's what is called omniscience. And we'll get into omniscience a little bit more in a minute. Um, then the other thing that the Buddha sees is they're able to see how reality truly exists. So, they're, so on the one hand, they perceive all of the, the myriad phenomena and manifestations of all of our machinations, all of our individual worldviews. They can perceive that. And, and also, they can perceive the underlying lack of inherent existence to all of the things that we believe exist. This is, this is emptiness in, in Buddhism. The, um, the fact that phenomena, things, experiences, and people, the way that we experience those things is a quality of our perception, not a quality of the objects. What we, what we see in other objects, what we see in people and, and our experiences, are the product of our interpretation, not the product of the, of the object itself. And in fact, you can't really, there's no real findable object out there. The only thing that exists are interpretations and opinions and overlays and conceptual overlays about objects. And so a, a Buddha is able to understand this lack of inherent self-existence to phenomena so they are simultaneously seeing all phenomena and the emptiness that underlies all phenomena. So that means when a Buddha looks at you, now this is, this is pretty trippy. When a Buddha looks at you, uh, a Buddha sees all of your infinite lifetimes. They see every incarnation that you ever went through and they see your trajectory towards ultimate enlightenment. Eventually, according to Buddhist metaphysics, everyone will eventually achieve the uh, enlightened state, that it's an inevitable uh, uh, 
evolutionary process. Now there are ups and downs. You, you, can go, you can slip backwards in your karmic, you can karmically devolve as well as karmically evolve, but ultimately we'll, we'll achieve this ultimate state. That's like the sales pitch for Buddhism, you know, that, that you're gonna get enlightened sooner or later, but if you do this, it could happen sooner. You don't have to go back to being an ant or a stray dog in Calcutta or whatever. <clears throat> so when the Buddha looks at us, they see all of that. They see our perception of ourselves so they can see that we're a suffering being. They can understand why, why and how we see ourselves as suffering beings. And they can also see our, I mean, I wonder, does it look like, like a centipede or something like that? Where instead of like a person, they see like through time mm -hmm. and they, they see this, but they can also see that, you know, in seven or 15 or eight million lifetimes, I'm eventually going to be a Buddha. Then they can also see all the crap that I went through in all of my previous lives. I, I puzzle on that. But because they exist outside of time and because they understand how reality is working, they're no longer limited to thinking that there's like the subject-object relationship is like a rigid thing, you know? That it's purely conceptual. And so this is, um, this is like our uh, attempt to define a person who's having valid perceptions 100% of the time, right? They can see... They can see my subjective misunderstanding of the world at the same time that they can see my emptiness and my eventual enlightenment. Okay, so for some logical proofs, um, methods for determining that the Buddha is totally correct about the deeper teachings. Um, this, is, uh, this is kind of like the Buddhism versus science thing, which I think is really... Uh, an interesting dialogue, an interesting argument. Um, basically, how do we know that the Buddha is correct in his assertions um, that they can't be disproven? They can't be disproven by any valid direct perception. Uh, they can't be disproved by, um, uh, by reasoning, inference, or, or deductive reasoning. And there's, there's no internal inconsistency within the teachings. So the first one can't be disproved by direct perception, by a valid perception. Um, the Dalai Lama kind of famously, I don't want to say taunts, but he kind of, he kind of provokes the, the world of scientific materialism. Because he's very, the Dalai Lama is really big on interfaith dialogue, including with science, the world of science and secular humanism. He considers those valid worldviews. And, and uh, Dalai Lama is, has called for a moratorium on conversions. He says, everybody's doing fine. You just need to do what you're doing better. Don't, you don't have to become a Buddhist in order to become a successful spiritual practitioner and, and to develop compassion and wisdom. That's the secular humanist worldview, which has no real uh, cosmic you know, no kind of life after death type of thing, rebirth type of thing. It's still a valid worldview for developing compassion and wisdom. And so it's a, it's, it's a worthwhile thing to practice. But he kind of pokes at the scientists a little bit because he says, if science disproves anything in Buddhism, Buddhism will be revised to accommodate the new discoveries from science. Well, so far that hasn't happened. Um, science hasn't been able to disprove any of the assertions of Buddhism. Science really, they really love to, you know, throw mud at the religious world. I saw a t-shirt, Neil deGrasse Tyson wearing a t-shirt that says, things that religion has proved science wrong about. And it's a list of one through ten, and they're all blank, you know. And it's pretty insulting. But, uh, and it represents an, a misunderstanding of what the spiritual life is really about, you know. Um, because science has utterly failed to have even a working model for consciousness. And Buddhism says, well, consciousness is the whole deal. Reality, reality is an aspect of consciousness, whereas the scientific materialist worldview says that consciousness is a byproduct of a sufficiently sophisticated nervous system. And Buddhism says that 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 that's an irrational point of view and that consciousness actually is one of the core ingredients of how reality is working. 
And so in that way, Buddhism is more evolved than the scientific method is currently in terms of explaining how consciousness and, and matter intersect, where the physicists are like clueless. They, they, are, they are openly clueless about this, but they still make fun of religion for being superstitious. So, um, so as Buddhists were open to being proven wrong, Buddhism is a scientific methodology. We're open to and taking new evidence, but so far there hasn't been any really good evidence to, to disprove the assertions of Buddhism. Um, but I think the third one is more interesting, which is that there's no internal inconsistency. Um, because there are apparent inconsistencies in Buddhist teachings. Um, there are the um, four bundles of teachings, or the four turnings of the wheel, I think they're called, which is that um, when Buddha was alive, when Siddhartha Gautama was alive teaching, he taught four different major corpuses of Buddhist philosophy. And in the first, uh, in the first turning of the wheel, he uh, was teaching that you have a self, that the self exists. And then in the second turning of the wheel, he says that the self does not exist. And so now, oh, damn it, the Buddha's given us a contradiction. How do we work with this? So the, from here, we have to begin to look at interpretation. How do we interpret if a teaching is to be taken literally or to be taken figuratively? Um, and so this is where we ask questions like, what is, what, are, what is the true intent of the teaching? Is there a reason that the teaching, uh, is there a reason that the teaching should not be taken literally? Is there a reason that he was saying something that wasn't literally true in order to make an impact on his audience? Uh, he taught different things to different people depending on what their capacity was, depending on where they were in their spiritual development. People need to hear different things. Uh, so like in the case of the self versus no self, um, Buddha was teaching, initially was teaching people who were more or less uh, secular, more or less secular people. And if you go straight to yourself doesn't exist, that's kind of, that's a little too scary. You kind of yank out the rug a little too quickly. Because at first he needed to convey to people that actions have consequences. And even if you don't experience those consequences in your current life, that the, 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 the consequences are inevitable because of infinite past and future lives. So any action that we take, whether good or bad, the results of those, that action must come. And so, you, so we, Buddha taught people that they had a self so that they had a sense that something was going to, to transcend death. Some part of them was going to continue on. And that's how you get people to start taking seriously their ethical lives. But then, when he, but then the higher version of that teaching is that the, the self that I think I have is an illusory construct. The, the cause and effect, the causality that he described when saying you do have a self is still accurate, but a, a more comprehensive understanding is understanding how the self itself <laughs> is subjective and subject to causes and conditions and, and uh, interpretation and, and so on. Uh, and the other, um, and so that way we can say, all right, when he taught the, the he had uh, an intent for saying something that wasn't literally true, like you have a self, you say your name to yourself, have some kind of reified objective existence. His intent was, his intent was to get these people to start thinking about rebirth, even though what he said was literally not true. So that's an example of how we need to interpret Buddhist, uh, what Buddhist teachings really mean. And another one, uh, another example of this is, does it contra contradict something we know to be true? And if it does, then it must be figurative. And one of the, exa the example for this, one of the examples for this is the uh, um, Buddha once said, kill your mother and father, which is like a very un-Buddhist thing to say. And it's very shocking, upsetting kind of thing to hear Buddha say that. 
So, and like the, the main precept of Buddhism is don't harm other beings, don't kill or hurt other beings. And so we know that a, that a cornerstone of Buddhism is to not harm other beings. So that way we know Buddha must have had some kind of intent or uh, he, he must have had an intent that was different than the words that he was saying. And in this example, well, he, he's, giving, he's giving an example of people who are too attached to their families to be able to practice their spiritual lives. And so he's saying you need to loosen the part of your mind that is overly attached to your family. But he said it in a very like, radical, kind of shocking way to get people's attention. So this is one of the things that we have to deal with as, uh, as students of the spiritual life is um, how do we apply the process of interpretation to figure out what are, what's the true intent of the, of the teachings? So that's our definition of a person of valid perception. Um, and so I'd like to talk about a little bit more about omniscience, um, because this is considered one of the, the main characteristics of a, of a Buddha, is that they have omniscience, um, which uh, om omniscience means om is uh, omniscience, right? The, the science of everything, the, the capacity to understand all of reality. So um, there, within the Buddhist world, there are different interpretations about what omniscience means. Um, because on its surface, it means things like knowing the location of every rock on the bottom of the ocean, or knowing the, uh, knowing the names of every single creature in the, in the world, or... Lama Marut uses the example of knowing everything that's been on every TV station for all of time, like off the top of your head. And that's kind of a simplistic understanding of omniscience, you know, like you, like, you're like a, a Buddha is like a supercomputer that has every factoid in the universe at, you know, at the ready. Um, but there's another way of interpreting omniscience, which is, um, which is looking more at what is useful as opposed to what is, what is possible by omniscience. There are schools of Buddhism that say, yes, Buddha knows everything. They know that every thought that every being has ever, ever had for past, present, and future, they do in fact know, they've memorized every TV guide and every TV guide that's yet to be published. But there's another interpretation that says that um, what omniscience means isn't just a catalog of facts but is a, a pragmatic understanding of what is useful in the world. What, um, specifically in the text, they say uh, omniscience means that a Buddha knows in an uncontrived way without having to work it out, they know immediately what is the right action in any given certain circumstance. What is the, right, the correct reaction in any circumstance? They know exactly unerringly what is going to help a person's spiritual evolution and what is not going to help a person's spiritual evolution. What to give up and what to take up on the spiritual path. So, <clears throat> this is, um, and, and this alludes to how Buddhas act in the world, uh, which is through teaching. That's how Buddhas influence others. Um, by providing the correct instruction or hint at the, at the right time. And this is how we kind of, this is that Sangha thing where we can assume, as spiritual practitioners, we can assume that Buddhas are interfering with our lives and they're interfering with our lives not directly by, you know, they can't, they don't have the capacity to take away our suffering directly, but they do have the capacity to coax us in the right direction provided that we're listening and that we respond. So um, a, another kind of discussion in, in Buddhist uh, rhetoric is the relationship between omniscience and omnipotence. Um, there's a, a lot of talk in theology about like the, the, um, the notion of a creator God. That, uh, that there was a, there's a, 
a being of unlimited power who has the capacity to manifest universes at will. And uh, I don't, it's a tricky thing. I don't, I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time on it, but um, this is one of the ways that we can assess that Buddhas have omniscience, but not omnipotence. Um, one aspect of this is that if Buddhas were omnipotent, they would have the capacity to just pluck our suffering out of us. You know, they would be able to, they would have the power to remove suffering if they had unlimited power. And so the proof that they don't have unlimited power is the fact that we still are in samsara. If Buddha's, if an, if an omniscient, ultimately compassionate, loving being had the capacity to take away our suffering, they would have done it. And so... So you're talking about the difference between all-knowing and all-powerful. Uh-huh. Okay. Correct. Um, so the... Um, so that's one of the proofs for that a Buddha is not an omnipotent being. Um, but then, you know, there's this question of like, how was the universe created? How did, how, how did we, how the hell did we get here in the first place? Um, and interestingly, the um, secular world, the materialist world, and the uh, religious world, both have, they have different explanations that have the same kind of flaw. Um, in the West, we have the Big Bang. The idea that there was a singularity um, prior to which the universe didn't exist, but then something happened, some, something happened, and it went from being nothing to being something. It went from being an, a void in which there wasn't space or time. There, wasn't, there was nothing that the universe burst into. The universe came into existence spontaneously. Um, this isn't 100% accurate because big newer interpretations of the Big Bang are that really it's just the, the radiation is too dense for our current technology to interpret what's going on in that part of the universe, which is, you know, looking through space is also looking through time because when we look at things that are light years away, we're also looking at what they were like when that light left its source light years ago. But it has, it has, this, critical, it has this critical flaw of the idea that there could have been a first cause, which itself was not caused, and everything and all causality started with the first cause that was itself not caused. In the theological world, there's this different but similar argument, which was that there was an, om an omnipotent God who was just languishing in vast empty space with nothing happening, and then this omnipotent God got the inkling to create a universe and then the, the, and then the omnipotent being created the universe. But you have the same critical flaw, which is that you had an unchanging, vast emptiness that then changed to create causality. And both of them have the same critical flaw, which was that there must, that both of them are, are based on the idea that there was a first cause. So you have an entire nexus of causality where every cause has an effect and every effect is itself a cause for future effects. But both the, the theological and the scientific view both come back to a point at which there was a first cause that wasn't itself caused by some previous cause, which is logically irrational. So in Buddhism, the solution to this problem is that time has no beginning and no end. That uh, we that our consciousness has been pro progressing through lifetimes, progressing is probably not the right word, cycling through, pro not necessarily progressing, sometimes it's progressing, sometimes it's regressing, but it's always moving forward through successive rebirths. And it's not necessarily happening, you know, we've already talked about how Buddhas exist outside of time. It's not necessarily happening on a linear time frame where like my last rebirth was in the, I don't know, 30s or 40s or whatever, and then when that guy died, he was reborn in the late 70s, and then when I die, I'll be reborn in the, in the future. Like, that's a sim a, the assumption that, that rebirth is happening in linearly through time, but that's not really realistic because time is a projection, and so rebirth can be anywhere back and forward through time, anywhere on different planets, on different, in different species that we haven't encountered, we haven't imagined, um, Buddhism holds space for all of that kind of stuff. 
But there was no first cause. There was no first birth. It's the, the universe is moving without a mover. And the only alternative, the only solution is to wake up to how the universe is really working and to be able to see all space and all time coherently. But there's no creator in Buddhism. There's no creator in Buddhism. The universe does not require a creator to function. Just, just always was. Just always was. Or you could say that consciousness is what creates the clear light of the void, the infinite field, the, the field of infinite undifferentiated energy, which is the underlying background to the universe. They're starting to call it dark matter in physics right now. The, uh, but they call it the clear light of the void in, in uh, Buddhism, that there is an absence of substance that is positively charged with energy. And that it's the act of perception that causes phenomena to coalesce from this field of infinite energy in a state of pure probability into a particular phenomena. So the subject-object perceptual relationship co-emerges on a continual ongoing basis. So there is no past, present, and future. There's just an ongoing nowness, which is the relationship between perception and a field of undifferentiated infinite energy in a state of pure probability. Yikes. So here's... Um, this is something that I will never understand, no matter how many times they explain to me. Don't say that. <laughs> You'll understand it sooner or later. Teacher. Um, I'll never be able to say... How is it that we can all describe basically the same thing in this space if it's emerging from us as individuals and I could go, we could all go touch that Buddha and we could say a million things about our sensory perceptions about it. How is that happening? if it doesn't exist without our bringing it into being. How, what does Buddhism say about the material world? I know this is getting you off topic, but it makes me crazy. So you're talking about perceptual congruence, the degree to which different yes. people see things the same way. Mm -hmm. That is a perception that you're having. You don't know that you're agreeing with other people. You're having the perception that you're... You have the perception that you have perceptual congruence with others, but you don't know because you can't read their minds. Okay. You like to talk, to, talk about mind. What is it you call those things? Mind. I don't know what you're referring to. Zan. Mind study or mind... Um, uh, yeah, thought experiments. Thought experiments. If... If all of us were to close our eyes and talk about the three main things that we see physically in this room, we would likely to have a lot of agreement about what that is. Why? That experience is happening entirely in your own mind due to your own karma. You have no way to validate whether or not other people are perceiving the world the same, the same way that you are. You only have your senses to rely on and your senses and are... Language. Yeah. And, and language. Right. But we also agree to. But it's, but it's entirely happening in your own mind. So this is I'm sorry, quite a bit off topic for this class. Sorry, That's okay. That's all right. We're, we're close to wrapping up. So it's an all right. It's all right to go a little bit uh, off track. Um, because you're, uh, what you're, you're pointing towards a question, that this is a, a common question in Buddhism, which is, is there any such thing as group karma? Are we, are we all in this room together because we have some kind of shared karma? And, and I've heard, the thing is, there are differences opinion, of opinion on this. I have heard people say, yes, we all, you know, the, this, however many of us there are in the room, we all have the karma to perceive this Dharma center and perceive this room, and we would all agree on the stripes and the rug and the color of the wood or whatever. Um, and so you could say that that's shared karma. Um, however, that's not really accurate. There's only individual karma. And you don't know if other beings are perceiving the world similarly or different to you. You rely on their language, but your ability to perceive their language is based on what your karma is forcing you to perceive. 
This is the, I mean, it's a little heavy, but this is the same argument uh, as to, I, I don't even want to go there, it's, okay. too, it's too heavy. I'm sorry, it's too I, heavy. I got you off track. One thing that helped me in, in relation to that is sort of the idea of like, say someone who's colorblind, and if you say, oh, this is green, and they say, oh yeah, that's green, well, knowing that they're colorblind, but you're not colorblind, clearly you're perceiving a different color. It doesn't literally look the same to them, it looks different, but they know that that's what people point to and say, hey, that's green, so that they say, yeah, that's green, or I have trouble seeing that shade, or whatever. So you can't actually see the same thing that they're seeing, they can't actually see the same thing that you're seeing, and you have no way of actually verifying any correlation or lack thereof between the two. And so there is some, some underlying difference there, even though you might still somehow appear to be in agreement about it. That's just something I picked up a while. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I just want to wrap up the class now and um, just to kind of summarize. So what we've covered in this class are some different types of thought experiments and logical proofs for trying to interpret what an enlightened being is like, um, what kind of characteristics that they have, in order to help us develop greater faith in the Buddhist practice, the Buddhist process. Um, in, in this case, uh, when I use the word faith, I'm referring to intelligent faith, reasoned faith. Um, the definition of faith that I like is um, belief in something that you know to be true. So we're not talking about blind faith of religious devotion. We're talking about the rational faith of uh, reason and logic allowing us to uh, access deeper layers of how reality is working. And that's what gives us the inspiration to take up a meditation practice and become serious about uh, our ethical life uh, and becoming spiritual practitioners. So at the, uh, it's customary at the end of a, a Buddhist uh, practice session to dedicate the merit. Um, we, uh, by spending time contemplating these kinds of things, we're, gener uh, we're working to develop our wisdom. That is planting good karma, uh, especially if we have a, the right kind of motivation, which is that we're trying to become better for others as opposed to better than others. Um, we're trying to become people who can really help and, and serve society and help it become a better place. Um, that's our motivation for doing this. And um, we have this sort of magical capacity to infinitely expand our good karma when we give it to others. Um, karma is, is much more powerful when, it's, uh, when the merits are directed towards others than, than if we direct the merits towards ourselves. So um, we, we have a dedication at the end where we imagine that uh, the good karma that we've developed here, that I don't want to keep the good karma for myself, um, because that would be selfish. I want to be altruistic and I want the good karma, the efforts that I've made here to benefit others more than it benefits myself. And that makes the karma much more powerful and much more far-reaching. So just take a moment to consider that, that, um, that, we, that you know, we, we're striving to cultivate a messianic attitude towards our world that... Um, that really it's our, uh, our own individual responsibility to make the world a better place and that, that we're doing this to develop the capacity to really have that effect on the world, to help others. <laughs>